Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Mark chapter 11. We're actually going to be looking at a couple other texts this morning uh, to give context. And those are Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Uh, You can allow me to read them, or if you want to double check and make sure I'm telling you the right thing, you can look those up. Um, Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah 7, but our text for this morning is in Mark chapter 11. So one of the things that, uh, those of you who are visiting us, we just went through this uh, nine-month-long assessment process to kind of gauge things that we are doing well and things that we need to grow in as a church. And one of the things that we needed to grow in as a church is uh, equipping the next generation. I don't know if there could be a better picture of equipping the next generation uh, than was going on this morning. And so these are how sometimes these things happen. Uh, I said to Rich, as I am uh, shepherding him and mentoring him, I said, you need to do communion. You need to you know, practice that a little bit. So, Mark's, uh, so Rich said he's going to do that. And uh, I took on the duty uh, of finding the men to do communion this morning, which I don't normally do. Um, and so for me, I'm like, I'll just grab some guys, you know. And so we had at least three guys that had never served communion this morning. And then Mark's, or Mark, I called him Mark twice. Now, Rich says... I'm going to have all the kids come up here and serve communion. Just so you guys know, I didn't know that was coming, okay? Um, that, that was totally a rich thing there. So that one wasn't my fault. Um, but, but it was a great picture of when you, when you pass on, right, for somebody else to do something, they're going to do it differently than you. And I, I don't think anything that we did, and I, I'm saying this so you guys understand, nothing we did was scripturally wrong. For some of you, it may have been very different. Now, some, I was sitting in the front row, and so, you know, when the kids start grabbing the, you know, the cups, I, you know, I was a little shaken there. I was like, oh, this could go bad, right? But it's amazing to me how often we put practice and traditions and rituals in place of the things that they actually represent. In other words, it's bread and juice and how it's served. But what it represents is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And if we get mixed up about the way that we serve it, and I'm not saying that we did, but if we were to, at some place we start putting the traditions and the rituals before what they actually represent, which is what's going on in our text this morning. In Mark chapter 11, we're in Jesus' final week here. It's just after the triumphal entry. In Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it says, On the following day, so after the triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it, in a, made it a den of robbers. 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have something against someone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, many of us have heard the phrase, uh, if you uh, have faith, you can move mountains. We're doing a series on prayer, and today, today's emphasis is praying for the things that are impossible or seem impossible. Uh, we looked at a definition of prayer, that prayer is a personal, communicative response to knowing God. We looked at different types of prayer, asking, seeking, and knocking. And now we've been looking through different things that we pray for. We pray for the prodigal. We pray for the lost. Last week, we talked about praying for healing. And as we looked at that, we realized there was a lot more to it than just praying for the sick. And so I chose this passage because we've got this mountain-moving prayer in here. But I want you to see, and I think what Jesus is saying, and understand it's hyperbole here, right? Um, he, he is saying this thing in a, in, in a phrase of, he's not teaching a lesson on cursing fig trees and moving mountains. There's something else going on here. And I think what Jesus is showing us is that the real mountain-moving prayer is when dead people become alive and followers of Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't say, you can move mountains. He says, this mountain. And Mark tells this story in a very specific way. Curse fig tree, cleanse temple, come back to the fig tree, discussion on prayer. The fig tree is center here. Now, this is the only negative miracle that we see in the Gospels. In other words, something died in this. There wasn't a healing, something wasn't brought back to life. So what is going on here? I'm entering into the passage slowly because I want you to understand the context. Jesus says in the temple, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. He is quoting two Old Testament passages. So let's look at those Old Testament passages and see what Jesus is saying. The first is in Isaiah 56. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. That's what, that's what Israel's waiting for. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keeps the Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in, uh, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about foreigners. He's talking about the nations. He's talking about the outcasts. But my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Jesus quotes from this passage in Isaiah 56, and then also in Jeremiah chapter 7. Very similar context. He says here, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah uh, from the Lord. Stand in the gate of of, of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, you men of Judea, who enter their gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice for one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So again, we see him driving people out of the temple, and we see these two passages dealing with how people are acting in the temple, and Jesus quotes these two passages. Jesus, in this passage, those of you who have read through the the Old Testament with us in the last couple years, when you get to the prophets, you you can see a prophet in here, can't you? I mean, he's doing this act in the temple. There's this figurative fig tree that's going on here. So what all is happening here? The day of deliverance has come. And Jesus comes to the temple. And he finds his people wanting. Lacking. Their hearts are far from him. He comes to a fig tree. Now, it says it's not in season, 
Okay? Fig trees are unique in that when they leaf, they can, they can give fruit in different seasons. He wasn't just looking for something that he would never find. He was hoping to find and a legitimate reason to find figs there. But that's what he found in Israel. Trees with leaf and no fruit. So he curses the fig tree. He's cursing Israel. We see Jesus turning over the temple and, and saying these things. And it seems, wow, he's got a little bit of a temper. No, he, he is coming to say, look, I have found my people and they're not where they should be. And then we have this whole thing about prayer and faith. I think this has to do more with our hearts. We say faith can move mountains, but that's not exactly what Jesus said. If you have faith, you can move this mountain. This mountain is the messed up religious ritual that impacts our life. It's sin that we let creep in. It's fruitless lives, greedy lives, apathetic lives, faithless lives, and unforgiving lives. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, fruitless lives. Augustine concluded that sin wasn't merely just an individual act, but it was about the heart. He believed that uh, what we love most, important, uh, is the most important thing to us. And he talked about having a disordered love. And disordered loves are things that we love more than we should, or things that we should love that we don't love enough. And what I mean by that is none of us ever sit out and say, you know what, I'm going to become fruitless. That's my goal this year. I'm going to become greedy. We don't set those type of goals. What happens when we allow things that we shouldn't love that much take a place of prominence in our life, we become fruitless or greedy. And so Jesus is showing that there are some things that have crept in too much. The first is fruitless lives. What does that look like? Worship, according to Isaiah 56, 1, without justice and righteousness. He starts right off with that. He said, you know, when I, when I come, when, when deliverance comes, I'm going to see justice and righteousness happening in my house. And that's not what he, he found. So again, in verse 1, let me read that for you. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Now, justice is a really a great buzzword in the church today and in our society, and as soon as you bring it up, people go, ah, don't beat me with that again. Um, And I I think that usually we use justice to mean you're not doing what I want you to do, um, or you're not believing this the way I want you to believe. Uh, One person defined justice as um, uh, what ought to be in our relationship with God and our relationship with the world. Now, what ought to be sometimes needs a little bit of discussion. And we don't like to do that in our society. We just like to throw rocks at each other. What does justice actually look like? What ought it to be? And that's a bigger discussion, but God should find that in his house. Justice and righteousness. Worship without rest and reflection. There was a lot of emphasis on the Sabbath, and I know that we live in the, the New Testament, and, and uh, 
We, we worship on Sundays, but there is a continual theme through Scripture of this idea of Sabbath rest. It's a time to focus on God. It's a time that we should actually rest. And I know that for some of us, rest has become a swear word in our culture. Well, we don't rest. We work until we die. Well, Pastor, that's a really nice thought. I wish I could rest, but you don't know my work schedule. Hmm, seems like God's pretty important. He has a pretty big job. He found time to rest. Um, so, you know, next time you say to that, I might be saying you think you're more important than God, but I, I probably won't. I'll want to. Are we giving God the time for rest and reflection? Um, he goes on to say, this is, blesses the man who does this and the son of man who holds fast, who keeps my Sabbath, does not profane it, keeps his hand uh, from doing any evil. So that idea of rest, okay? Um, next, third, worship without love for the lost. Um, there's a lot of reference here to the, in, in Isaiah to the eunuch and, and to the foreigner and uh, these people that have been cast out. And he says, look, when you come into the house, when you honor the things that I want you to honor, you're going to have an everlasting, an everlasting blessing or uh, attachment and, and uh, heritage in my house, which is far greater than anything you could have had. And there's a point in where uh, we need to make sure that we are loving those on the outside in the same way that we love people on the inside. And that always becomes an issue within organized churches and groups, those on the inside and those on the outside. You know, the story in Acts of the Ethiopian eunuch who's leaving uh, Jerusalem, and he's, he's in the desert, and he's reading Isaiah, and Philip comes up to him and explains it to him. It's an amazing story because what's the eunuch? He came to Jerusalem to worship. He's now in the desert still looking for the answers. Why? Probably because he wasn't really received very well when he was in Jerusalem. They took his money. They sold him some scriptures. I mean, so many times we, I'm not saying we shouldn't love people on the inside, but we need to love people on the outside as well. It's part of our vision. Love God, love people. And those people have to be those individuals and families inside and outside our body. Worship without prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Sometimes prayer in a worship service seems awkward. And I, I, some of it is me, I know, because I went to a Christian school uh, as a kid. And so you would, you would have a group of kids that would come in and they, you know, from recess and we're all hot and sweaty from playing football out there and we're still talking to our friends and different things like this and the teacher needs to get control of the classroom. Well, in a Christian school, you can do this. We're gonna pray and everybody has to be quiet. And I'm just saying that prayer got used as a classroom shift sometimes instead of prayer. Right? Prayer just seems like, uh, you know, i got to get this room quiet. If I pray a little bit, they'll be quiet. Prayer is more than that. When we come here, we should expect to talk with God 
in a personal, communicative way because we know he hears us. Worship without being aligned with, aligned or allegiance with Christ. Look, there is all sorts of things that we can do without being followers of Jesus. You can come to church, you can sing the songs, you can give the money, you can take communion, you can serve in many different ways and not actually give your heart to Christ. We had a uh, pastor's wife in a church that we served uh, with as a youth pastor one time, and uh, this pastor's wife was a second-generation pastor's wife. Uh, her mom was also had been a pastor's wife. And she told us her testimony one time. And she shared how this was back in the day with you. I, it, we don't do this anymore, praise God, but it, to be, in order to be a pastor's wife, you had to play the piano. Um, it was, I think, I think it was in the church constitution. I'm not sure some of you can tell us, but you had to play the piano. And so she was sharing about how uh, they had a revival at their church. They had a guy come and preach, and uh, they were doing a revival, and she was playing piano for the revival when the preacher gave the invitation and she came forward. Could you imagine the boldness of that woman playing the piano to recognize through the preaching of God's word that she had not given her heart to Christ? And instead of going home and say, honey, I got something to tell you, she felt the spirit move and she went forward. Now, I'm sure some people frowned at that, but I bet some other people stood with her. You see, we can do all the things and attend all the meetings and not have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And then finally, worship without repentance. And Jeremiah is saying, bring your sacrifices. Bring, bring these things there's, there's a repentance in there. It's amazing that they could keep bringing those animals and letting them shed their blood for their sins and still not really being repentant. Our lives are called to bear fruit. That fruit is seen in how we treat other people. It's seen in how we rest and reflect on God. It's seen on how we care for the lost. It's seen in our prayer life. It's seen in our commitment to Jesus Christ. And fruit means that we are going to be repenting of our sin and coming back to Christ. Second on your notes, there's greedy lives. Again, we don't set out to be greedy. Greed happens when we love the wrong things more than we should. And greed invades the church when the church becomes a hideout for those who get rich in unjust ways. I've always, I referred to it earlier, I always love that story of the rich young ruler. Because the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he's, you know, he's, he's got leadership skills, he's got money, he has some understanding of who God is, and, and Jesus tells him to sell everything. I mean, these are the people that, you know, we're supposed to try to get into the church, right? These are the people who say, oh man, we need you. But what the temple was doing was allowing people to come practice all the stuff of church and hide out in their sin. If we're just going to praise people because they're rich and not 
question where that comes from or how they're using their money. That's not really shepherding. The church becomes a hideout for self-indulgent people. The idea of giving, today we gave in the benevolent, afterwards we're going to do our regular offering. The idea of giving is that I am going to take part of what God has given me and I'm going to invest it in the community, in the church, and in missions for the glory of God. That's, that's part of the role. I'm going to invest what God has given me and more. I'm, I'm not going to just keep building my own kingdom. Right? We say, no, I, no, I just have to give a part and then I can do this and do this. And this. No, it's, it becomes more and more of just investing in God's kingdom, not becoming self-indulgent. The church becomes a hideout for false worship. I love the uh, passage in Isaiah that says you're committing adultery and you're worshiping Baal and then you're coming here. And you say, man, how did that ever happen? Listen, if you're worshiping that other culture out there and then coming to church on Sunday and it's just a Sunday thing, then you're doing the same thing. Are we becoming greedy? How much is enough? What was the answer? Was it what, what billionaire said when they asked how much is enough? He just said, one more dollar. How much is enough? Can't take it with you. How are you investing in the kingdom of God? Third, on your notes there, kind of moving from that, is apathetic lives. We don't set out to become apathetic. We become apathetic because we love the wrong things more than we should. He calls it the temple, a den of robbers. Now, notice the den, right, is, is not the, we see him overturning the money tables. And we said, oh, you're, you're robbing people. And that probably was happening. Some of what was happening in the temple had to happen that people needed to exchange things, right? People didn't want to travel long distance with a lamb and then get to the temple and have the priest tell them that that lamb wasn't uh, sufficient, so they would just buy it there. It's like pre-approved, right? So there were some of the things that were happening there, but there's a bigger picture here of what the temple had become. It had become a place where evil people just could hang out, be unrepentant, apathetic. Um, let me just read these uh, two verses from Jeremiah here. Uh, just, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, do we come into worship, do we come into the body of Christ to amend our ways? Um, let me just hit a few things there. Change our direction. Uh, amend our ways. It's a change of direction. Too often in our culture, we approach the, the gospel as something else we add on to. Ooh, I'm going to have that and this. Okay? Some of you might go over to Izzy's afterwards. Right? And you just go, I'm just going to get some pizza and some salad. But when you go to Izzy's, you never just get pizza and salad. 
right? Then it's the dessert bar, and it's the chicken, and it's the mojos. And so we've kind of approached church as just an add-on. Following Jesus is just an add-on. He says, no, I want you to amend your ways. I want you to change your actions. And I want you to deal with each other justly. Which means, as we talked about Christ's mercy, at bare minimum, it means showing other people the same mercy that God has shown you. Now, when we look at this picture of this withered fig tree and these overturned temple, uh, tables in the temple, and Peter goes, look, look, look at the tree. Jesus is, is saying something about our hearts. The real mountain that is moved is when you and I trust Jesus Christ. When, when the dead changes. And when we look at somebody else and we go, oh, man, they're never going to get it. We miss the gospel. God has changed you, despite you. <laughs> and God will change others. He will move some incredible mountains. He will do the impossible. And I think sometimes we become faithless in our lives. Again, we don't set out to be faithless. We just become faithless because we love the ritual. We love what we have done more than the relationship. In fairness to the, to the Jewish people, it had been 400 years since the last prophecy. They were under Roman occupation. The high priest was crooked. Antiquity said of Ananias, he was the great procurer of money. Jesus came and people rejected this new covenant, this new way of life because they just didn't want to get rid of the other stuff. I wonder how much change you see in your life because of Jesus Christ. A book I was, I'm reading recently um, and things that I need to learn and grow in and uh, this book has really been helpful to me, but he, he talked about the fact that we are more prone to things in our life that are more what he calls resume character. Uh, in, in other words, he, he talks about uh, resume virtues. You know, we want, we want the things that we can put on a resume and say, oh, look who I've become. Instead of eulogy virtues, oh, he was really kind. He was really caring. And we've become so obsessed with achievement in our culture that we are not changing our character enough. Here's the impossible. God makes the dead alive. You want to talk about a mountain-moving thing? God takes dead people and he makes them alive. God takes the sinner and he makes them righteous. God makes the poor rich. 
In what way does God make the poor rich? Because you go, oh, I really like to be rich. Let's talk about that, Pastor. Salvation, character, inheritance, future. Again, it's those, I love that, those virtues on the eulogy. God makes an orphan a son or daughter. We, we read that in that Isaiah passage. He says, look, this, this eunuch is going to have a heritage. God makes the unfaithful faithful. I know that's a big list there. God makes the dead alive. God makes the sinner righteous. God makes the poor rich. God makes the orphan a son or daughter. God makes the unfaithful faithful. Let me just, just stop here. That's the gospel. God takes the dead person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and he makes them alive. He fills them with his spirit and he changes them and molds them into his image and gives them an everlasting family. I don't know what the mountain is in your life that you're praying that God would move, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I believe he could do it because he's already done it in you. God's already done a miracle that deserves our worship on a daily basis. And then, you know, this just keeps coming up, and I I honestly did not plan this. Uh, One of the things that we're working on as a church is reconciliation and working through uh, forgiveness issues. We need to do that. Um, I, I... promise you. I grabbed this passage because of the faith mountain thing, and then I didn't even preach the faith mountain thing because I got to stay true to the text. And then Jesus like, oh, wait a second. Where does verse 25 come? How does that fit into everything? And, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. When we don't forgive, it impacts our prayers. He says, look, if you're praying, make sure you go go forgive. It impacts our prayers. It impacts our own forgiveness. That's the Lord's prayer, right? Forgive us our debts, what? As we forgive others. Oh, wow. How about we just pray and forgive our debts? That's a little easier. Look, unforgiveness is such a thing in our culture today. And Christians have just kind of tried to put like a Christian lipstick on it. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. They say, oh, I love them. I just don't like them. Let's just call it what it is. I guess in the South, right, it's bless their heart. Is that, that's what it means, basically, right? There's some Southern people. You, I thought that was a compliment. Apparently, it's not. It impacts our lives. In our scripture reading this week, I just love the story. It just really impacted me. I, I just stop and read it again. Uh, I've read it so many different times. But Jacob, right, he is just a scheming 
just a boy. And his mom basically is the one that taught him how to do it. And he steals his birthright from his brother. Then he steals the blessing. And then mom says, you better get out of town. Your brother's going to kill you. So he goes. He gets swindled by his uncle, which is great, right? It gets back to him. And he has worked seven years for one wife, seven years for the other. Then they start having kids, and they have a baby-making competition that's going on for a while. And then they have this, you know, competition going of who's got the best goats and sheep and all this kind of stuff. And he leaves, and he's heading back to, to family. And it's been, it's, it, at this point, it's probably got to been over 20 years. And the closer he gets to his brother, he's like, oh, yeah, that guy wants to kill me. And he's wrestling with this. And so he prays with God, to God and says, deliver me from the hand of my brother. And then he says, Genesis chapter 32, deliver me from the hand of my brother, but you said, God, I will bless you and make a nation out of you. What is he doing? He is praying based on the promises that God has made. I know who I've been in the past. I've swindled my brother. He doesn't ask for justice. He doesn't want justice here. (laughs) But God, you have made a promise. If you want a great way to pray, pray about who God has said you are to be and you're going to be. Now, I think Jacob knew he was guilty. And the next part of the story is he starts sending a bunch of gifts over to his brother. I know you think when you read that, you go, oh, he's bribing his brother. I don't know that he was bribing his brother. I think he was paying his brother back what was due him as the older brother. Look, I took your blessing. I took your inheritance. God has blessed me. Let me give part of that back to you. There's, there's so much there in that forgiveness section. Um, who has God said that we are? What do we need to pay back? Just some good stuff there. Here's some application and action from our message this morning. So Jesus is saying, look, prayer and faith can move this mountain. I think this mountain is our fruitless, greedy, apathetic, faithless, unforgiving hearts. That mountain is exactly what Jesus found in Jerusalem when he got there. And when the Lord returns, may he find something different. Because God is changing our heart through the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this morning. What mountains in your life need to be moved? And before you say finances, before you say healing, before you say uh, the mansion on the hill, whatever it is that you kind of think about out there, whatever that mountain is, why don't we start with the mountains in our own heart? What are some mountains that God needs to move in our hearts? And with God's help, let's begin moving those mountains. What do I mean by that? Let's bear fruit. Let's be generous. Let's have a dynamic faith in Jesus Christ. 
Let's be forgiving. Let's be passionate about our relationship with God. Let's wake up. Let's let God do in our heart the things that we hope he's going to do in our kids' hearts and our grandkids' hearts and in our neighbors' hearts. Let's pave the way. Now, there's some other people that are close by you. And maybe there's some mountains in their life. And lovingly, as you remove, right, the log in your eye, we can go to one another and help other people move the mountains in theirs. God is in a heart-changing business. Let's submit ourselves to him and see God change our hearts. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Uh, thanks for a time of worship. Thanks for our kids leading us in communion this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, we want to see change in our community. We want to see change in our nation. We want to see change in our kids' hearts and our grandkids' hearts. We want to see them uh, become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And perhaps that means identifying some things in our own lives that are keeping us from you. Maybe we need to make some changes. Thank you that you take the dead and make them alive. That you take the sinner and make them righteous. That you take the faithless and make them faithful. God, may we believe that you are changing us and molding us into your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.